Hello, everyone. Justin here from the Hang Fire podcast. Welcome back to another in my series called Uncovering Undercover, where we focus our conversation on the album Undercover. This month marks the 40th anniversary of the Undercover album, and I thought it'd be fun to commemorate it by talking about the album with some people who really know their stuff. And today, we're back with Scott Galupo. Scott has a fantastic YouTube channel with his great guitar series called Riff Cousins, which I encourage you to check out. Link is in the description below. Hey, Scott, how are you? Welcome back. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Justin. Good, good. Fantastic to have you back. I can't wait to talk to you about this album. Right off the gate, I think I want to ask you this question. Why do you suppose reviews for New Stones albums never start with the phrase, this is their best album since Undercover? Yeah, that is, it's the, it's considered the beginning of, of a decline, isn't it? I mean, apparently. Yeah. A- apparently. And, I mean, and Mick Jagger himself, 1995, I think he told Jan Wenner in that long interview for Rolling Stone magazine. Great interview. And the the extent of, of Undercover and Dirty Work was the same sentence by Mick, not a special record. Oh, I didn't know he included Dirty Work. I remembered he talked about that with Undercover. With one set, it was like one question, one response, identical, not a special record. Dirty work. What about dirty work? Not a special record. <laughs> so, you know, if he if he feels that way, um, but that's that. It's our job, not theirs. <laughs> Nicely yeah. put. He's a bit of an unreliable guy, isn't he? He's a bit of a, a bipolar in that sense. Because if you look back at the, you know, um, interviews at least at the time of the release of the album, both he and Keith are very, for the most part, positive. But I guess maybe that's maybe marketing PR stuff they're doing but i mean they, they're they very confident about the album at the time and then well, of course things sour you know maybe make is influenced by it not selling well or you know perhaps it didn't perform as much but it makes you wonder why he changed so quickly well yeah he's an in the moment guy does not look to look like to look back we all know that uh and a lot of things are going to get forgotten overlooked because of that i mean i mean bill wyman is like the the other extreme he's focused on details and minutia as an archivist and historian you wouldn't want him Mick Jagger to be like that either but some kind of a balance of reflection and forward vision would would be nice but I've tried to understand why it was seen as a miss or why wouldn't it have been received more positively because they were just coming off one of the biggest successes of their career Tattoo You was one of the, it sold almost a million copies in its first week. It had Start Me Up, which was the biggest hit they've had to the present day. Uh, it was the number two hit in the U.S., I think. Miss You from 78 was the number one. So they were on a very, very successful run to that point. And the 81-82 Still Life Tour was their biggest, most successful tour that they had had to that point. Biggest audiences, maybe there's like over 2 million people or more. So that ended in 1982 and an album came out in November of 83. So what could possibly have happened in the space of a year for them to have missed? Or, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts. And I think the first you have to start with the single. The first thing that people heard from that album, Undercover of the Night, versus Start Me Up, 
If you start me up, I'll never stop. Simple big guitar riff, simple lyric, and then you undercover the night, which is about authoritarian regimes in Latin America. Fun stuff. Yeah, yes. And I think it is a stunning song to this day. I, I think great. the lyrics are incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, not just dealing with the subject matter, but the way he makes the subject matter, which is kind of heady and intellectual, he makes music, rhythmic phrases out of it, alliterative phrasing. Like, you think of a line like, the, the jaws are jerky little G.I. Joe's. <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. Very Chuck Berry kind of a vibe there. Exactly. I mean, that's not easy to do. Um, but I mean, back to the, the the point of, you know, to go from Star Me Up to 100,000 disparus. You know, if you're thinking the typical American consumer of music in 1983, what is a disparus? <laughs> what right. is that? Why right. should I care? Right. Uh so I, I think that probably had something to do. But then again, it was still a top 10 single. I actually had to look that up. It was, I think it charted number nine in the U.S. Now, I'd like a top 10 single is still a pretty big hit. Absolutely. I wouldn't, that's not a dud. So for that, that's an achievement right there that we perhaps overlooked to, to take an inspiration from a William Burroughs novel about Latin American politics, abuse, people being disappeared and sent to the camps back in the jungle to make a top 10 hit out of that is, I don't know, it's pretty remarkable, but it might have something to do with why the album was, it, it, just, it wasn't a simple, um, it wasn't a simple entry or access point to what they were trying to say in 1983. And I have an um, alternate, the uh, Ian McPherson came up uh, with this fantastic alternate view of Undercover of the Night. He says he sees it as an updated Sympathy for the Devil from 1983. Complex, uh -huh. you know, um, challenging, dark lyrics at the top. You've got a dancey vibe at the bottom. And you've yeah. got a different um, set of woo-woos. You know, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. So all the elements there are kind of hearkening to a Sympathy for the Devil, but for 1983. I thought that was a very entertaining idea you know to that think is although i think of that guitar vocal line i think of it more as a miss you kind of line <laughs> totally, uh, totally but it it works it i mean i, I love ronnie wood's guitar solo i it is fantastic i i love his playing on that i love all the production elements that you know like we, we use the, the term dated and it's almost always taken to be something pejorative if to say that something is dated when I, I think it's it's just it's neutral in the sense yes it sounds like 1983 but that doesn't mean it's bad i i would love somebody who knows this stuff better than i do like what is actually happening on that recording with because they had slide dunbar robbie shakespeare they had these percussionists uh the brian mcgee who was the drummer in simple minds is also credited with something on that track there, there was this thing that was popular at the time called a Simmons electric drum kit that had all these different drum sounds. I mean, there's a lot happening on that song. That was those were the production sounds and techniques of 1983. And yes, it sounds dated, but I still think it sounds pretty damn cool. All the way that the the guitar fades out, fades back in, 
Right. I think it was a tremendous achievement. We have to remember that 1982 was also the year that Thriller came out. Mm -hmm. And that did really change the face of music. Sure. Uh, compared to Tattoo You. I mean, that that was just... And I feel like what Mick was with too much blood. Oh, yeah. What was going on? And it, it had to have been a little bit of his attempt to try to, to make a, his own thriller. This idea yeah. of a horror show mm -hmm. with a dance thing happening underneath and a really long song. Yeah. Um, I look at those two songs, and to me, I'm, I would much rather listen to those two songs than necessarily I would, uh, Too Tough. Uh, uh -huh. Something that's quintessentially stonesy. Yes, those so they're they're okay, but to me, you know, Mick always gets flack from fans over the decades of trying to chase trends and be current. Uh, but in in this instance, I think he actually he got too far ahead. He went too far. You can't say that. Like when he made a recording of with with Michael Jackson for State of Shock. I mean, that's trophy hunting right there. That's hit hunting. But you can't look at a song like Too Much Blood and think right. he's just trying to be hip. Uh, right. Because that song is out there. It is yeah. out there. And, would, and wouldn't you say that the whole album is taking chances like that? I mean, it's not necessarily just Too Much Blood. Maybe Too Much Blood is at the front of the line, but so is Undercover of the Night. And, you know, at, at the very least, uh, people overlook that um, maybe aesthetically the album may not be your cup of tea, but the content of the album is very much Stones. It's incredibly disturbing, a lot of the images on this album. You know, maybe the, their most disturbing album. Pretty, some macabre, grisly, I mean, they tie you up and uh, yeah. pretty feet up. And, and this, this is the other thing that, in addition to being a batch of songs that they started from scratch, this was the beginning, I think, of the modern Mick and Keith era the modern era the, the way they would approach songwriting from then to to now uh, demos situation I went, I went yeah i went back and looked at some of the interviews what i could find on youtube and they said in separate interviews in a couple different places that this was the first time in a while that they had come to the studio or come separately yeah. with songs uh already written or demoed pretty extensively and then taken those to the rest of the band and that's the thing, that's how they have worked ever since, pretty much. Uh, maybe to, to Keith's everlasting consternation, because <laughs> Keith wants to sit down with you in the studio, face to face, and come, so come up with something spontaneously. For and, weeks. Uh, yes, something all night. And uh, so this was the first, this was Mick saying, I'm going to write on my own. Which he had done. We know that. He had done that in the 70s. Um, but this is the way they were going to work from from here on out. And maybe something got lost in that. Yeah, I was also discovering that uh, Keith explained that they had worked on... They actually did, got together and did some kind of pre-production on this album, which um, was the first time they had done it in a long time. You know, which, which it kind of, for me, is an important detail to remember because... For as much as people want to dismiss the album, it shows that this album had as much care as all the other albums, you know? So um, it's not easy to just assume that it's got an 80s sound, so something they just put together, 
in the studio, and quite the contrary. No, they worked. I mean, you, all the elements, like mentioned before, Sly and Robbie, and they were swing. It was a big swing, and and I think because of the fractured relationship that Keith and Mick were getting into the the middle of, and it would get worse from there. Uh, there's a reason with the ambition that came in on the front end isn't necess- didn't necessarily make it all the way. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing would happen in Dirty Work when you look at. They had they brought in Bobby Womack and Don Covey, Tom Waits. I mean, you, you hear some of the stuff that was left behind, and then what ended up being put on record. You're like, what, what happened? Right. But it was that was also a big swing. They brought in a Steve Lillywhite for that album. That was he was the hot hand, and I I know for Undercover they elevated Chris Kimsey as a co-producer, so the ambition was certainly there. Uh, I, th- this was a big swing and maybe you consider it a swing and a miss, but, uh, it was not tossed off in, in any way. Right. Well, how would you describe the album if you could in one word? I mean, maybe to someone who, um, hasn't heard it in 40 years or, um, is it easier, do you suppose, for a listener to come into it, maybe hearing it once, like it's time for a revisit or never hearing it ever. And this is their first time. I mean, is, is one listener have an easier job ahead of them than the other? That's a tough question because, I mean, how old is the listener? <laughs> uh, because I, I mean, feel like a lot of those trends in the album are um, a little bit more relevant today, so people are not as defensive about them as they were then. The things that were considered trendy were the, like some of the electronic percussion and synthesizer. I mean, there's not all that much of it on the album. Right. I guess we can kind of overstate that. Yeah, there, there's there's a little bit of it. So it wasn't it wasn't like a radical reshaping of the way the Stones sounded, mm-hmm. uh, right. but it does sound quite a bit different from "That's Who You" and and emo- like "Emotional Rescue" and some girls kind of sound mm-hmm. similar in many ways. Mm-hmm. They're some of the same sessions, uh, and then "Tattoo You" has this great cohesive sound to it that. I think took a lot of work to achieve. Bob Clearround's re- mixing of it all. So Undercover, it has a sound. It's kind of, I don't think Charlie's drums sound particularly great. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. His playing's fine. It's all, you know, you know that, how I feel about Charlie Watts. Mm-hmm. But they don't, this, the kit doesn't have a great sound to it. There's one, the critic Robert Criscow, uh, he's, he calls it, murky and i would agree with that in in one word it sounds kind of murky mm-hmm. it's like it doesn't the whole thing doesn't pop well it's uh, interesting you say that because it, you're right i didn't realize that but especially with charlie's sound it doesn't have that air that magical air around his instrument as other albums do you can almost feel the room it's a little bit in a vacuum this album yes it is there's there's uh and dirty work was was even worse mm-hmm. that that got corrected by uh on steel wheels I yeah, know. and I don't make Chris Kimsey. I don't know if he was involved, but Charlie's kit was like, "Hello, yeah, that's it's back." Right. But with all that being with all that being said about the production and and stuff like that, one thing that still leaped out at me while I was listening to the album is that it still feels like a Stones album on the bottom end, sort of thing. Like Wyman is playing his ass off, sounding great wherever he is playing. If it's not Robbie Shakespeare. 
Um, and yeah, Charlie Watts is, yeah, you kind of have to find him in that murk, but I'm still moving around. I'm still grooving and it still feels like, shit, this is just stones that I remember just like all the other times. It's just a little bit more dialed up, a little bit more makeup, but you know, it still delivers in some way. So it's hard for me to dismiss the album because the it's guitars are very, the guitars are loud and, uh, like that. It, it must be hell. That's a pretty oh. big guitar intro too tough. He kind of reused that one for, um, uh, gosh, it's, it's wicked as it seems. If you think oh. of the main too tough riff, he, he recycled that. I should do this for a riff cousins. Yeah, um, you should. In wicked as it seems, he, yeah. where's not the main riff, but the part that goes, so I soften the blow. So the bruises don't show. Oh, I got the expertise that that's too tough. You just came across an episode for yourself. And there, the, the, I have to talk these things so that the, the mind makes the connection synapses far but you're you know that's the thing that also i noticed the album is a very guitar album this oh, yeah. dirty work you know i mean it's for you know and for a stones fan that's heaven because that's what the stones are they're a guitar band and it's an yep. attack of guitars everywhere you look yeah and uh i mean to tie you up those little um dyads or double stop things that keith's doing he would also reuse those if yeah. On on the live versions of Satisfaction from nineteen eighty nine and ninety. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That seven chord thing. Yeah. All those that dominant E dominant seven thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he would that that's tie you up. Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So and it, you know, and, and he was it's almost a it's almost like you would think that he has no more riffs to or original kind of moves to do, and he still's got one more up his sleeve. I think I don't know, and if you you when you play guitar, you can fiddle around with something for years and years and years, and it never leaves. Like you might never think about it in your right. conscious uh, life, but then when you pick it up, it's it's there at the end of your fingers. And sometimes that can mean you're in a rut if you just repeat yourself all the time. Yeah, uh, and I guess it's also about making a statement, like deciding, oh, this is thing I had laying around all this time maybe i should make it into something you know yeah um and i think i love want to hold you i i don't love that recording but when they did it live in 97 that's exactly how i feel about it totally the thing really came alive oh yeah like wow oh yeah this song is exciting and uplifting but like as you said it seems kind of vacuum sealed on the record. Well, especially that recording. And I group um, Want to Hold You and Pretty Beat Up on the same way where they're just this lump of clay to me. There's just yeah. nothing there. And it's disappointing yeah. because for both those versions, I happen to enjoy the live versions uh, uh, in another world. You know, like you mentioned, Want to Hold You on Bridges of Babylon tour. And then uh, my first exposure was Ronnie Wood's live recording on his solo stuff of Pretty Beat Up. Which... Oh, yeah. And Bernard Fallon does a tremendous job singing that. Yeah, absolutely. Really beautiful. Yeah, so yeah, it, it, it's a, head of, a bit of a head-scratcher that want to hold you. Not that it's on there, that that's the best they could come up with. I mean, it's, it's, it's just like it's unfinished to me. Yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot of... The verses are kind of... I know he was shooting for a Lennon-McCartney mm -hmm. kind of simplicity, early Lennon-McCartney, Lennon but it does seem kind of small. The verses are kind of silly, like... yeah. I hope you find it funny and got no money. It's like, come on. Um, no, absolutely. But, do you have any? Do you have any favorite riffs off the album? Like immediately, you think of the album, you think of oh, these riffs dominate the album. Well, 
I mean, I think Mick's undercover of the night is is outstanding. It's one of the best things he's ever done. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just me. Like Jack White, uh, around the time of Shine a Light, the movie promotion, mm-hmm. I want to say this was an interview he did in Rolling Stone when the three of them were on the cover. Jack White, Mick, and Keith. He talked about he had given consideration of covering Undercover of the Night, uh, which would have been really cool to hear. Like totally. maybe there's a recording of it somewhere that he he tried. I would love to hear that. You know the music writer Chuck Klosterman? No, I don't know him. He's written a lot about music and he's uh, and other stuff. But he called Undercover of the Night semi underrated. You know what, Chuck Klosterman, you're you're semi overrated. Let's say people care about you when you're 60, let alone 80. Uh, we'll see if people are still reading and talking about you. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I, I digress. I remember these things. People make these tell. little wide remarks, these little insults. I never forget. <laughs> it's it's so funny how uh, we we hold on to these. We have it's the Keith in us, isn't it, to hold these grudges? Grudges. I'll nurse. I nurse them like like a garden in the backyard. I cultivate watering them. them. Good yes. for you. That's yeah. great. It's one of the great joys. Well, we've I think we've had a Stones has many times to kind of take on the brunt of some of those comments for many ways over the years, and we've had to just go, okay, one one of these days we'll get back. This, you know, wh- ask why do I do what I do? At least for YouTube and Stones, it's because they're they're better than you think, and they're better than you remember. And- Wonderfully put. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's a sort of. The entrance way for what I would like to put out as my message for this month for my celebration for Undercover is that that's exactly how this album is going to meet you. It's going to be it's better than you think, and for those who maybe heard it once and forgot about it, it's better than you remember it. You know, yeah. Uh, um, I think there's a lot here to enjoy. I mean, uh, just mix vocals throughout the album is fantastic, and I mean, I don't think. You know, I, I keep going, and you so it sounds like so to you. You're always going back to Undercover of the Night. But for me, that's you're right off the bat. That's a very high point of the album. And I love the track. I think it's funky as hell. And uh, to me, Ronnie's the MVP of that song, yeah. as well as Mick. I mean, they really pull it together. Um, Keith yeah. is not really on it, as far as I can tell. But um, it's a hell of a track. And then it's followed up by She Was Hot, which is more traditional kind of styles, but... I think overall, like some of those lyrics, I think I would, I'll say this. I think that it's the Mick has not done as good a job with lyrics since Undercover. That's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, it's his last great effort at lyrics. Absolutely. Absolutely I right. I think some of his lyric, uh, dirty work lyrics are very good. Uh, are they? Not um, mm-hmm. But some of the social commentary, on that album, he had some songs that he penned himself. I thought that it was Keith and Ronnie really taking well, the I, brunt of it. Yeah, yes, for sure. I think he had two songs. Well, Winning Ugly is the only song he wrote completely on his own, probably. Uh-huh. And Back to Zero, Chuck Lavelle came up with that. But just for lyrics, whether Keith and Ronnie came up with the riffs, I think the the words of one hit, Fight, Had It With You, Dirty Work, are Mick lyrics, um, so and some of those lyrics are 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 very good, I think. But back to dirty work, the whole, I mean, it's like a cliche, a road cliche song. Yeah. 
it's as cliched as it might be when it's done well it's very satisfying uh, yeah and i love the i love the sound and keith's guitar uh very that lighting yeah it, it it sounds just like the guitar is on that it's got that wonderful shimmer on it like emotion on an emotional rescue that, that rockabilly a thing that he does even on like yeah. he's so cold um kind of thing um yeah he's not playing i don't know if it's done post-production but that's not the sound straight out of an amp there's no way oh interesting okay uh there's some grease on there i don't know what what it is there's something on there but i love chuck lavelle's keyboards yeah and she was hot there they're it's like an electric piano sound i think it it's a nice contrast because it's the song is basic traditional blues based rock and roll but his playing on it kind of makes it sound a little more fresh for the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's also on Undercover the Night. His organ. Chuck Liddell's organ. It's very good. Yeah, he's all over this album. And, you know, I've read interviews with him later there that he admits that, you know, he, he's not necessarily a fan of the synth stuff and and these things. So obviously it wasn't his choice to do it. It's obviously it's someone else's choice to put as much synth or, what not on yeah. his songs and he's just following orders um but um i was reading another article with ronnie and he's also trepidatious about adding that kind of stuff but he said at least i'm willing to try it i'm not like keith who says no i don't want any of yeah. that and you know keith can be very uh polarizing in terms of his opinions on that it's not no gray black or white you know I, yes and i can see him being difficult to work with in that sense if he's just automatically dismissing something out of hand I could see why Mick would be like, okay, then I'll go work with somebody else and give it a shot. Maybe I won't like it, maybe I won't use it, but I at least want want to hear it. I have a theory that Keith hates any kind of instruments that can work without you sweating. You have to put in some elbow grease in it. You have to actually put in some effort. If it's just pressing things, it ain't going to fly for him. That You can very well be right. Although he's just, it's something that Tom Petty said about George Harris, because they worked together for the Graham and Wilburys, he said of Eddie said of Harrison, I don't think that his music taste, his taste in music went beyond 1962. <laughs> right. And, and I think Keith is probably about the same. Yeah. Uh, obviously he got into reggae, but it's because it reminded him of the authenticity of, of blues. Right. Um, and it's the same way he, fell in love with those those guys the, who became the wingless angels mm-hmm. it's like they were this people in a village and he was the first contact with mm-hmm. civilization and he could see them in their their pristine state and wanted to capture that so he's a he's very idealistic that way yeah uh, 1950 mid 1950s rock and roll is is an artifact of uh, mass media, Western civilization, whatever you want to call us. It's not, uh, we never would have heard of the blues down in the Delta, if not for mass media. Mm-hmm. Uh, totally. Anyway, I, I'm, do you, like, you can't be too much of a Luddite, is my point. And I, yeah. I, I would think I would side with Mick in, in that sense. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't done the math on it to check other bands and their trajectories, but like, you know, the more you stay with your quote roots and double down on them, the more you become isolated in a way. I mean, you become this niche thing, you yeah. know. And uh, how do you straddle both this becoming familiar 
but also becoming malleable so you can survive and compete with whoever else is on the charts, compete in a true way. That, I mean, that's why we're still talking about the Rolling Stones is because they absorbed trends. I mean, we all, this is said, it's almost to the point of cliche, but that's one of the things that interests me about Undercover is in that new wave disco period of 70 through 81, they seem to have like straddled that line very flawlessly. And then in 83, they they started to wobble, at least in the eyes of the public. Um, so they were fine incorporating disco and new wave. And then once Duran Duran and Michael Jackson came along, it be, they it just, they start, and then they got, they turned 40 and MTV exploded. We can't understate that either. And they didn't tour. That's the other thing. Not going out on the road and playing shows. How would and you think that would have been a major impact, huh? If that would have what rebalanced that opinion? I think if they had, if they were in a condition to tour like they did some girls and yeah, I think uh we might remember that album differently. We'd heard those songs live. But it, it also could have been a disaster. I mean, Mick said if they had toured dirty work, it might have ended the band. Right. Even Charlie's problems with drugs, uh and just how they felt about each other, Ronnie's problems, you know, maybe it's best that they didn't tour, but I, it would have been interesting to hear those songs live in 1983 or 1984. I also wonder. Which songs do you think they would have played and which songs do you think would have really been like the new staples? Maybe they wouldn't have waited until 2007 to play She Was Hot, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, that's right. the first time I think they played yeah. it. Yeah, right around, around the time, yeah, 2006, because they came on China Light. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. That was a bit of a, from left field when they pulled that one out, you know. Yeah, and a lot of that is, uh, for as much as we complain about, uh, Mick is the one, I think, who's most resistant to trying deep cuts. Right. Uh, Ridiculous. Yeah, that's very frustrating, because, you know, if, if people aren't up and jumping around and they don't know it, then he gets bored. Like, right. uh, and he's got to remember, he's got to read the room. His, the people in that audience are not like, have you seen clips of them in, uh, 21 and 22? Mm -hmm. He would twirl his jacket around for midnight rambler at the end of the catwalk. Nobody's doing anything. <laughs> Nobody's moving at all. Everybody is old. They're seated, but you can't just because that, that doesn't mean they're bored. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's so restless. Right, right. Uh, as a performer, I think if he looks, if people out there are kind of vacant, you know, or not moving, he gets very restless. And that's when he he plays a song like "She Was Hot" or a, a new song, he gets he gets antsy. Well, I I have, I'm I'm optimistic, especially since we're now apparently in a new Stones era. Yeah, whatever that means, you know. Which, cheers to a new Stones era, Scott. Whatever that is, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Forty years after undercover, <laughs> uh, but I I have a I have some optimism that perhaps maybe you know one of the songs from Undercover or any of your other favorite albums might be tested more because I think with uh, slightly you know more energy in the engine room now with Steve Jordan I think you know maybe Mick can have a little bit more confidence and to think oh what if we pulled out something and with Steve back there he could give it a little bit you know of the yeah. confidence that it needs. This is my hunch. I'm, I'm, I have nothing to base this on, but 
it seems to me that Steve is more interested in out of time, mother's helper, nice nervous breakdown, like that classic era. That seems to be him pushing, like, I don't, I'm not sure that they would have done out of time. It's not for Steve. That's just a hunch. And I know what you're saying. He seems to definitely be responding well. I do recall him saying somewhere that he was really looking forward to Shattered or he was really pushing for them to do Shattered and they eventually did. I, maybe yeah. even Fool to Cry, but one of the 70s tracks, I remember going, ah, so he does like, and you know, he he's using a drum kit that's based on the 75, you know, vibe. So he's definitely thinking of yeah. you know, more of a raucous energy. But you're, you're totally right. You know, he just kicks ass on all those 60s things like, yeah. Uh, get off my cloud and out of time and jumping Jack flash, all that stuff. Yeah. He's definitely leaning into that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think now it's almost like, you know, the sky's the limit for choices of what they could do on stage because of Steve. Um, and you know, if, if you were to have uh, a word with Mick and say, Hey, let's, let's include something from undercover on the next tour. What would you handpick? Well, if, if not the title track or the semi title track, which before I, before I answer your question, I, I will say that if you've heard of or seen the interviews of Ronnie talking about the song, he likes the funky version that they did in like like in Shine a Light. I think there's a um, uh-huh. an outtake of it. Yes, yes. And it sounds quite a bit different from the record and the way they did it in 1989. I like the glossy 1983. I don't like the funky version that Ronnie wanted it to go in there the uh i think there are outtakes of it too that are a little less glossy that's his word i like the way they did it in, on the record and in 1989 i thought it sounded terrific terrific in 1989 and it was only six years old at that point yeah when you think about it right i still kind of a new song yeah really i mean that was their catch-up time wasn't it to kind of play like this is the instead of a tour then we're playing it now yeah and Harlem Shuffle, they did, and that was only three years old. That was the, yeah. I think that was a top five hit. I have to go and look. That was a hit single. I could never wrap my head around that one. That one's always elusive to me, Harlem Shuffle. Um, but, you know, I don't know why. Yeah. I, I dock at points because it's a cover, not that that makes any sense. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's just a strange one. I'm, I'm waiting for a remix of that one. You know, I hope they, it'd be nice if they remixed Dirty Work. Do you think Undercover needs a remix? Yeah, I would love it. I mean, I don't know if you're a fan of the replacements, but they just put out mm-hmm. a remix version of Tim that he mm. Paul Westberg wanted to wanted to be called Let It Bleed. Oh, funny. Uh-huh. So it's called Tim the Let It Bleed edition. Just came out like a week ago or so. And they had their their album prior to that was Let It Be. Could you imagine if they had put out Let It Be and Let It Bleed? That would have been, that was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Uh, right. But anyway, the remix of it sounds like radically different. Okay. Anybody wonders what is the point of mixing? Like, wh- what's the big deal? Like, go listen to the A B of what was released then versus now. I would love to hear Dirty Work remixed, like un mm-hmm. Lily Whited. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even know if it was his fault because it didn't sound like anything that he had done with other bands. Either. Right? It wasn't like wasn't a trademark sound that he brought in that didn't work for the Stones. It was just Again, like undercover, I think the, the the sessions were very fractured, and they were taking a big swing, and it just it just didn't get to the finish line. Is this too is this too cynical of me to 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 entertain this thought that Mick and Keith 
always have a little bit of tension in their uh, relationship just to keep the music going and just to keep, you know, that area of their creativity fresh and kind of bristling and always friction just to kind of keep the electricity going. Because it seems like on this album, it's kind of working in their favor, but like you say, just it doesn't deliver all the way. But there's there's blossomings of something that could be happening if only they could get it together. I do not think that they have to contrive <laughs> any tension is my answer. <laughs> I don't, so maybe it's not cynical. You don't have to be cynical that they uh, don't need any excuse to wind each other up. <laughs> I really don't. Are they the most combustible of all the duos out there or what? Because it seems like it's special to them. I think that we only hear about it because they keep coming back together. Like uh-huh. bands may have combusted in in much more with much more violence, <laughs> and then you never hear about them again. But we just keep hearing about them because they keep coming back. Right, right. But they might you might the story never ends when they at that Jimmy Fallon uh, introduction of the album, the news September sixth in London. He had, how do you guys keep going for so long and make us head by not speaking to each other yeah and that i don't think that's an exaggeration at all well and keith had the topper to that he had a fantastic remember his response is how do you learn how to say shut up politely yeah 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 yeah. what a yeah. great line yeah oh it's um, so true and it's i do think that they care for one another for sure but they're very very different people would you say that this album, Undercover, is a little bit something like Bridges of Babylon, where it's, well, I mean, some people have said that Bridges of Babylon was like a Mick album and a Keith album put together. Do you find that Undercover was sort of a precursor to that? I th- Yeah, it was the beginning of that. It really was the beginning of that. Right. And I think they tried to paper, I think Voodoo Lounge was the one, I think they tried to write together more like Keith wanted for Voodoo Lounge mm-hmm. than they had on Steel Wheels and then subsequently Bridges to Babylon. But yeah, this this undercover was the new, it's a fresh batch of songs, and it was the way that they were gonna work henceforth. How would you how would you rate the tracks from best to worst? You know, you can give me your top five or something, but like for example, what song you would you delete for sure? Let's start there. Um, I don't think that Feel on Baby works very much. I think it's interesting as the sort of a dub reggae experiment. But it's not something I ever go back to. I'm like, man, I haven't heard that song in a while. I need to, I need to cue that up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. I like all the way down. It must be hell. I like those, like mixed lyrics and the phrasing on all the way down are tremendous. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. I think some of those, like, how the years rush on by, birthdays, kids, and suicides. I mean, who else would sing that line like that? Mick, Mick lost an opportunity to, to write for Hallmark. Those are some... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? I think oh. His line of harmonicas is not the way to go. A line of greeting cards is the way to go, Mick. A Mick greeting card. Oh, my gosh. It's your birthday. So what? <laughs> yep. I, I agree with you. Feline Baby is, is not one that I go to. I always forget it even exists because... Uh, yeah. But that's just my own uh, unfair bias. I mean, not to say that it's against reggae, because I love a lot of their other reggae-infused tracks, but that one just seems yeah. to be, um, has trouble getting to second gear or third gear or something for me. Yeah, they just, it was more about the sound. And they, they were fooling around with 
the way that those dub reggae post-production effects and you can i think you can uh a little bit of it goes a long way although they did yeah they did a lot of it on too rude uh on dirty work too uh yeah that's 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 true and a lot of things happen with the drums um you know where the air gets sucked back in it's like yeah you know what i'm talking about right right Uh uh-huh cool effect so your top three songs then on the album Oh, for Undercover. Yeah. Yeah, Undercover of the Night. I'm going to put too much blood in there. Nice. Because I think it's, I think it's, that's fantastic. I mean, wow. It's different. If you, well, talk about, talk about it then. Talk about why would you, how, how would you sell that song to someone? Well, I, I would like to, to sell it to somebody who thinks they know the stones. That would be interesting. Or they only know the hits. Mm-hmm. And they don't know any deep cuts at all. Right. And if you play them that song, they, you, they'd be like, it would, they would either hate it right out of the box, like, what is this nonsense? Right. Or they'd be like, whoa, that I I, I didn't know that they ever did anything like this. Right. This it's so far out of the box for that. What are the what are the song's strengths? The groove of it is is hypnotic, in my opinion. It's, yes. Um the Jim Barber guitar. Oh, I love that. Is is was very up. Oh, Quran for the time kind of it reminds me a little bit of Thriller again like Michael Jackson that kind of hypnotic groove that goes on for a long time mm-hmm. and um, and then you get that chorus that's kind of uplifting and romantic a little bit um, and it's mixed sort of it, it's it's an, a statement of anti-violence mm-hmm. if there is an idealistic sentiment in there right but he's not trying to beat you over the head with it right um right and um, rocking the hard place from steel wheels is the same way mm-hmm. his whole thing with that song was the world i always mick in politics would be a centrist a realist uh-huh and he's the same way in the music business he's a realist mm-hmm. so when he feels like with rocking a hard place was everybody telling me this is how I have to feel about this issue and that issue and how it'd be a, a, a right thinking or bien pensant uh, about any issue of the day. And he's like, no, the, the life is more complicated than that. That's why he felt stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. And Mick gets absolutely no credit for writing anything intelligent. Well, you know, yeah. that's not true. Obviously, people know he did Sympathy for the Devil. And Well, no, I'm, I'm sticking with your first statement. I don't know if he's renowned as you know, he's definitely on a Dylan level, but that would be one yeah. of the not the top three things people would label Mick as is a great lyricist, and that's right. totally unfair. Again, it's underrated. Great, he's had he's had there, his effort at lyric writing waxes and wanes over the years. Yeah, there there's, uh, there are times when I'm like, come on, you 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 that was the first rhyme that came to your head, and you didn't right. give it another thought. Right as you mentioned, I'm thinking of the song "Streets of Love." Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> keys to your love, keys to your love. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, for those those t- four tracks, that that was a, one of the most frustrating things for me. When it's like you put these, you force these four songs, and instead of putting shattered or waiting on a friend, I mean, I think I'm get whatever was left off of those forty licks, mm-hmm. and you put those four on. And they're not even that good. They're not finished. 
But um, go go listen to Keys to Your Love now that it's been reissued. Right. And listen to the bridge. It's so undercooked and unfinished. That one is a head scratcher. Absolutely. And the the verse is cashy. I got the keys to yep. your love, but then there's no chorus. Mm-hmm. There's no chorus. Yeah, it doesn't go anywhere. And, and then, yeah, it's the last one. I and I love the as a recording. I love "Don't Stop." I'm such a sucker for "Don't Stop" as a recording. I think it's their Ronnie rescues that song. Oh God, that solo is beautiful, isn't it? That spiky is that is that just his classic strat he's on there? Yeah, yeah. But it's a it's a motif, a theme. I'm guessing he came up with that on its own. It's um, it it rescues the song, yeah, because it, uh, it also does not have a chorus, really, and that's why it has to have two, not one bridge, yeah. but two. <laughs> Wait, it has two separate bridges because the verses and the chorus don't go anywhere. And this is one of the things I believe if, if, is that Andrew Watt was not going to let them get away with uh-huh. on this upcoming out. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like you listen to. Everything that we've heard so far, I don't want to spoil anything, but Angry, you heard that. Yeah. Angry has an A section and a B section in the verses, and the choruses have an A section and a B section. Yes. When it goes up to that C sharp minor. Yes. There's like two choruses within the same chorus. Right. Like chorus one and chorus 1A. (laughs) You know what I mean? Depending on you, I don't know if you heard that. Yeah. But it has a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a really big chorus. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of the big ingredients that was missing um, from those forty licks demos, right? And uh, and some a lot of a bigger bang. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you could definitely sense that on the new album, it's going to be song songs. You know, songs that yeah. are going to look good on paper. You know, as well as coming through this. This used to be a strength of Mick, more so than Keith, I think. Somebody who could make a chorus surge. Right. You think of honky tonk women. Right. Um, it's only rock and roll. Uh-huh. Like it's only rock and roll is it's it's an okay song, but then when the chorus hits, you're like, man, there it is. Right. You're you're in it. Mm-hmm. He's capable of it. We we know that. Yeah, I mean, uh my one of the so many articles that have come out for the new album and uh the recent quote that I love was Andrew Watt had told Keith uh, early in the sessions, he said, you know, Keith, you basically picked out a freak from behind the barricade to produce your album, yeah. which I was so happy to read. And I got the sense that he was that guy because you could sense that what was coming out was a guy who was um, very caring about the music and this band that says, oh, thank God you got someone behind the wheel who cares. I want to know how much of a freaky actor he is. And I, I won't, <laughs> I can't know that until I, if I, unless easy, I talk. Scott, easy, easy. Let's take it easy. <laughs> is he a freak? Like, does he like the IR? No, like, you want to know, yeah. you want to know if he likes the song Tie You Up. That's what you want to know. I want to know if he knows that song. Yes. Well, he's I'm dead serious. Well, he, you know, I, I know what you're saying because he, uh, he mentioned something uh, in another interview, something like that. Like he said something like, oh, he wore a different stone shirt every session. I thought, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Well, he did wear a Winos, apparently Winos and New Barbarians. Oh, okay, so see, something. there you go, you see. And he also said that he, you know, he went to a lot of shows. I mean, he's 32 yeah. or 33, so like yeah. that means he's gone to a lot of later shows. I mean, that says a lot, despite 
mm-hmm. what he may, what his credentials might be. I mean, to go see them not just once, but like he says, a few times in the recent modern era, that says a lot. Yes. No, no, no. I, I don't want to put him down in any way. I'm, I'm just I'm fooling around. I would love to meet him and talk to him. Oh, uh, yeah. Get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll work. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Well, yeah, no, I can't wait to talk to you about the album because, uh, it, it, I mean, there's just going to be so much to talk about. And I can't believe that it's, yeah, you know, maybe we'll get to, how about you and I, we'll start the army of people saying this is the, that's going to be their best album since Undercover. Let's do that. <laughs> it might be better than that, though. That It might be. It might be. It might be. Is Well, yeah, technically, because I'm already hearing whisperings of going people going all the way back to some girls now, some not just girl. Tattoo You, which is, of course, very tempting to say to some it's girls. It's very... The stuff's getting real. People are saying that. <laughs> well, you know, people are always very generous and very excited in the beginning with these albums, right? They're always saying, yeah, and then it kind of decays yeah. within a matter of months. Right. Let me yeah. as we close up here, um, a couple last things uh, on an undercover. Do you think it's their most forward-thinking album out of all their albums? Do you think it's their, it's it's them planting a flag that hey, you know what? We're going to take some chances. We don't know if it'll work, but here it is anyway. Do you think this is their most chanciest album? I don't think so. I think they've always kind of operated that that way, the way they did there. Like, I mean, you could say the same thing for Steel Wheels. Oh, like, really? Think of something like Continental Drift. Oh, well, yeah. They go to Morocco. Right. And, you know, they get no, nobody knows that song. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, it, it opened all the shows in, in right. 89 and not before Star Me Up hits, but it's, and, and then fans, we don't give Mick credit. We think, oh, he's just chasing after trends. It's like, well, what do you, what do you, would you call continental drip? There's no, yeah. there was no trend that we, of Moroccan drum music mm-hmm. happening in 1989 yeah. that they needed to go and chase. You're exactly so I, right. They have frequently, before Undercover and afterward, have tried to do something to keep things interesting mm-hmm. for us and for themselves. Voodoo Lounge. I think it tracks like Moon is Up, yeah. which is a, a kind of a a very odd sounding song with pedal steel going through Wah Wah and Keith playing through Leslie. Yeah, right. That That is a pedal steel going through a Wah Wah, isn't it? Very strange. Uh, I love that sound. And I'm glad they kept it. And in fact, they talked about before recording that album that with, they, they want to keep those things that people would find odd and Previously, they would have been like, ah, that's interesting, but nobody's going to like it. Leave it off. Let's put those on the record. So, yeah, I would say they've always sort of operated that way. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, this is a tricky question, but uh, I don't know how you want to handle this as we close up here. But would you say that Tattoo You is sort of like the unofficial official dividing line for their catalog? Because I want to cue up this question of how do you rate Undercover as an album compared to everything else? You have to kind of rated amongst from tattoo post tattoo you on in its own separate category because it seems like it'd be unfair to rate undercover with a let it bleed or sticky fingers yeah as you know so is that the only way to do it how would you rate no, i think that's right i think tattoo you was the closing of a classic period if you want to think of it that way and then from 1983 and we call it the modern era when it's 40 years ago <laughs> um Right, but yeah, it was. There's a definite line in demarcation. I think in the the songs they started writing, the way they started to work, mm-hmm. apart from one another. 
It's an interesting idea because, like, you know, the modern era, I think we Stones fans have always marked that as steel wheels because of the tour and that era starting. But technically, yeah. there's something more uh, deeper that's happening here, like you're, for the stuff you're mentioning, just the way they worked, you know? No, I started there, and in 89, they wanted to tour. They wanted to write and record and tour all within a year. Mm-hmm. And again, this, this is a similar kind of deadline with Hackney Diamonds. Yeah. We want to be. We want to get this done by Valentine's Day. So that this, they can only stand each other for so long <laughs> before right. they, they start to all the old problems start to resurface. So then, okay. So if we take Undercover, Dirty Work, Steel Wheels, Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon, Bigger Bang, mm-hmm. I guess we'll stop there. How would you rate those mothers? How many is that? I would say I, I would. I'll listen to Undercover before. A bigger bang, certainly. Before Dirty Work. Yeah. Um, I like Voodoo Lounge and Bridges to Babylon quite a bit. And I like Steel Wheels. I would say it's four out of five. No, that's six. Right? Undercover, Dirty Work, Steel Wheels, Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon, Bigger Bang. So I would rank it uh, fourth out of six. Yeah. Yeah, that's just about right. And um, hopefully that gives people... Uh, some perspective there that you know uh it's th- not at the bottom of the list and you know we'll get to that when we do because i mean we're, we're also trying to uh break the myth of dirty work being their worst album you know what does that even mean you know I, I we know better that look me <laughs> up <laughs> well fantastic well uh on that note this was great fun scott to kind of go trip take a trip down memory lane and you know kind of re-explore the music because i think it's due for a you know reevaluation, and I think this is a good time to do that. I'm, I'm just kind of disappointing that it doesn't seem like they're gonna be putting out any release for it, but you know we'll we'll make do on our own. They we could they could open the vaults to us, and we could go in there and save them all the time. Um, but nope. They're by the stubborn. by the way, I I was listening to some of the sessions from this album. There's so much good stuff that they couldn't get to. That's just mind boggling. That you know they couldn't. But that's the story of their of the band. They're always doing yeah. stuff. Yeah. For, for certain, yeah. yeah. Well, oh, Scott, you want to tell people where to find your wonderful material online? The, the name Scott Galubo, search it on uh, YouTube. I believe I'm the only person with that name on this planet Earth, or Heath Richards' Riff Cousins. Thank you, Scott. We'll see you next time. Justin, the pleasure is mine. I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. More to come. See you later. All right.